Season two, son of a pitch. We're back. We are back. Welcome. This is Max and Vince from the Son of a Pitch podcast. And we're here to kind of chat about what went wrong in season one and how we're going to be better, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, season one, a low base, but with low bases comes a lot of opportunity to improve. That's right. We were just lucky that we had a lot of really smart strategy minds to kind of pull us up yeah. uh, from our bootlaces and make <laughs> us into something that we weren't. Um, but yeah, I think it was a success. Uh, uh, I'd say what so. Do you well, well, we set out with the goal to do 10 episodes and if people found them useful, we'd do more. And it seems like people got value, people sign up to Miami, people giving us shout outs and, and getting insights. So we're going to, we're going to do some more episodes, talk to some more strategists, hopefully with a better, better audio quality and, uh, more batteries this time, Vince. And more creatives too. I mean, we had a couple of creatives on the first season and we want to expand this thing to kind of include them as well because I know a lot of strategists are getting a lot out of it. But what we're going to do is we're going to get into some more nuanced conversations about the creative world and the creative side as well so that we can yeah. start developing some empathy for our fellow creative man. Um, and we're going to talk to some talent scouts as well, people own talent agencies to talk more about getting getting your ideal dream job and also people who have founded their own agencies to get the entrepreneurial lens uh, over the Son of the Pitch podcast. So a lot in store for this season, more briefs, more interviews, hopefully more banter, better banter. I think we need better banter. Much better banter. I mean, we, we kind of, I think we were like, we were formal at the start and shitting our pants and we got a little bit more natural in the middle and probably too loose and beaten down by a lot of people. And then up the other end, we kind of wanted to course correct and maybe it wasn't yeah. natural enough. But now we're coming back to you warts and all. We want to make sure that you kind of, uh, you get the real deal. None of this like edited, boring, like prim and proper stuff that everyone else is bringing to you. This is Max and Vince being dickheads, talking to people that are really smart. So yeah. hopefully you'll enjoy that. We're also looking for a new co-host. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we got to get rid of this Max guy. I he's, mean, uh, he's, he's letting just bringing, us down. Bringing this right show down. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Uh, but... It, Honestly, like we've got a lot more show ideas. Maybe you have a show idea and you want us to produce it. You know, just come out, give us give us a bell, and uh, we can chat. But what's coming up in season two, episode one, Max? Season two, episode one. We sit down with Julian Cole, the fabled Julian Cole, bum, and, he, bum, bum. and he was awesome. Uh, and we touched on a lot of things. We'll probably have to bring him back for a part two. I think we are going to do that because we got into a lot of stuff about career how much you should ask for as far as dollars are concerned, which I'm sure a lot of people is just pricked up about that one. Um, diplomacy, how to get media people to actually do their job and stop going on oh, long wow. lunches. Wow. Uh, we just lost like <laughs> all of our media audience. All that, yeah, yeah good riddance, good riddance. No, 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 come back, come back, come back, come back. Um, but we, we talked to him about a lot of the stuff that kind of uh, that gets on your nerves or maybe, maybe the organizational stuff that you can do better out there as a junior and learn from from um and it should be really helpful with your career so yeah. we're gonna get that in part one yeah and then we're going back for a part two where we'll talk to julian more about advertising his philosophy and advertising what he thinks is good bad all of that type of stuff julian also had this great bit about your exit strategy and what to do in Adland by the time you're 40 and what your options are and you know what our exit strategy is vince what's that it's the son of a bitch podcast oh god this we are doomed <laughs> We are doomed for eternal failure, but 
you know what? If you if you push in forty and you don't know what to do, Start this a podcast. is a great. It's a great episode for you because you're gonna learn exactly uh, how to navigate that thing, or maybe just run into an existential crisis because it's too late. Yeah. But you will be able to say, "Hey, these young people don't know what the hell they're talking about. I'm never gonna listen again," which is awesome. Yeah, and also <laughs> just a bit of a change to the format of the show. Actually, uh, we're gonna do the ad read up front now, so you don't have to be disrupted we know how annoying disruptive ads are that's it so uh, so we're gonna do the we're gonna do the ad read now so miami ad school a school for a creative and planning boot camp so if you want a hundred dollars of your application fee just drop us a line at podcast soap at gmail.com that's podcast soap at gmail.com i know what you're thinking we know we haven't we don't have the money to afford an actual proper last domain name we're sticking with the gmail Gmail's yes. serving its purpose. It is. It serves its purpose really well. We don't care that Google's like mining our data and looking at all of all of we're the stuff a, that gets sent through. We're not a professional podcast. We're, uh, we're not. And like, why would they be interested anyway? We're not I forking mean. out fifteen dollars for the at. No, but son uh, of a pitch. But it, if you do want to hit us up on Wicker with some other private stuff, then yeah, you're, you're welcome to do that. We'll set up a little we'll Wicker for just you. Just disregard uh, the Wicker chat. <laughs> um, but anyway, so Miami Ad School, absolutely awesome. Helga Diamond, there's a champ. She's giving away the application fee completely free for anyone who listens to Son of a Pitch. Podcast soap at gmail.com if you want to get involved. Your best way to get into planning or a uh, strategy or a uh, creative job. That's and also, it. just some shout outs to some people who gave us a shout out. Thank you very much, Kevinda, Julian Cole, TDB, Francis Clayton, The Clems, Fable Newsletter, and Bart Hodgen. Uh, it really helps that you are you're spreading the word of a Son of a Pitch podcast and expanding our influence. So, so thank you. But more than that is like we we love the people are getting stuff out of this enough that they want to share it to others. Um, that's absolutely no. Amazing. It's about our glory. So, uh, it's about our glory, and uh, you're and you're helping us uh, yeah, move yeah. forward. Bro, move move Max closer to his uh, thirty under thirty. Do it, do it. Get him that number one. Start the campaign. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Campaign thirty under thirty for Max. Hashtag, um, hashtag Max thirty under thirty. Anyway, enjoy episode one. We love you. Um, thank you for listening to season yes, thank one. Thank you so much. Here's season two. Oh, it's gonna be a blast. Yeah, this is something you don't wanna miss. Uh-huh. Interviews with creatives and the best strategists. All the top in Australia who steady making moves. Uh-huh. The podcast that puts you right in the pitch room. Yeah, professionals in this market. Uh, time to get it started. Uh, give us some complex problems, so let's see how you can solve it. Tune in with some Aussies. I bet you can't resist. Yeah, yeah, get it hyped. This is Son of a Pitch. Dylan, you son of a pitch. Julian Cole, welcome to the Son of a Pitch podcast, mate. Glad, glad to be here. I've listened to, I think I've, I may have listened to all of your, uh, your podcasts today. So I'm very excited to be here too. I think the way that we wanted to kick off this interview was by talking about kind of the impact that you've had on strategy to date and whether or not you actually feel that. Because I know that myself, the only reason why I started in Strat is because I looked at your Skillshare course and I would not have known about it like at all. Like there would be no exposure whatsoever that I would have found that would have put me in the spot in which I, I, I figured out this strategy thing. And I think that goes the same for like a whole lot of people out there. So I, I just want to know like what, what it feels like for you to kind of be feeling that and whether or not you do. Um, I, I don't think I do. Uh, where, so, so 
Talk me through, how did you, so were you working in agencies or how did you first get into it? Yeah, yeah. So for me, it was, um, I was working in a management consultancy and I think the median age of the people at the consultancy was like 60. So I was looking for a way to kind of parlay that strategic uh, knowledge. And it was weird because I was also trying to build like graphic design skills on the side. So I went on Skillshare, found the strategy course, and then it was like, holy shit, this thing I do in consultancy can actually be fun and be creative. What made you want to do that and put that online and, and, and make this strategy thing kind of open to everyone? Uh, so I guess I started out in around 2006. I was working, um, actually, it's all to do with my mother, to be honest. So uh, Going to university, I went to Monash in Melbourne and was doing a uh, psychology management marketing degree. And after the first year of, oh, maybe I was in like my first semester or first term and mum was like, what are you doing for your future? Um, where, where are you going? Have you done any internships yet? And I'm like, mum, I just started. <laughs> she's like, she didn't care. She was just like on me hard. And she's like, what are you doing for your future? When are you graduating? Where are you going? And that got me uh, doing a number of internships. I'd done about five. And one of the last ones was with um, Nick, who was one of your earlier guests from Sputnik. My mum worked in advertising. She was in, um, my mum and dad owned a production company. So they did TV ads, small TV ads. Dad was the director, mum was the producer. So she knew Nick through like family friends. And uh, that's how I got my break. He, um, I think mum was like, can you meet my son? Um, I was working at the university newspaper at the same time and I was like, okay, cool. Um, what was that first introduction like? Uh, I, I was sweating a little bit, but I was um, really keen to work for them. I think they did maybe the first campaign for grilled um, burgers. It might have been grilled. I don't know. But they were offering like free uh, burgers if you said like a code word. And that was how they like launched one of the first stores. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's so cool. Like such a cool way to do marketing. And I was like, oh, this is the type of place I want to work. So I was already sweating it a little bit because I was like, in awe of these guys who are doing really cool work. While I was there, I um, started, uh, I, I got the internship and they wanted me to do competitive reviews every month. And I started doing all this research about like cool new digital campaigns coming out. And then at the same time, my mum's like, come on, what else are you doing to start your career? She keeps on hassling me. And so what I did is I started gathering everyone's business cards that I'd meet. Like, you know, you're meeting random people. Like I met a tire dealer up in Albury and I took <laughs> and then what I did is with my competitor reviews, I was like, I'm going to just do this every month and send it out to people because that seemed to be valuable in the agency. So I was doing these competitor reviews and sending them as like PowerPoint documentation documents every week of like, Hey, here's a cool new thing. Um, the guy in Albury actually said, take me off this fucking list. <laughs> <laughs> so it didn't really work with everyone, but um, some people it worked with. Um, at the same time, this is around 2006, blogging was just starting to happen. So I was like, oh, I'm going to get myself a blog. And I think from that day, I kind of had the idea um, to share stuff. And that was going to help me get my name out there and hopefully get me my first job. Um, it's funny, all your past guests I've kind of worked with in some way. So, so yeah, the next place I worked was with, um, Adam Ferrier, 
at Naked. I saw what they were doing and I was like, I, I was going in account management, I think if I was at the Sputnik, and then I'm like, I want to do this strategy thing. That sounds awesome. Um, and so I asked, I was like, I'll volunteer for you for free. just want to work with you. Um, and Adam took me on. And I kept the blog going at the same time. And I think what the blog did was um, what I realized it started to do was it actually made me a better strategist because um, I think if you're out there and you've got to teach other people, you've got to really be um, confident in your own skills and you really kind of put the mirror back on yourself to see what you're doing. And I've found that that's made me a way better strategist as I go along. So it's actually a bit of a selfish reason of just like, um, it makes me a better strategist. And I think still my mum's in the back of my head like, what are you doing? What are you doing? For you? <laughs> <laughs> now coming consulting, it's kind of helping me a lot now, I think, because it probably keeps my name top of mind uh, to the people that I really want to work with. So it's a bit of both. Um, so, yeah, that's how I got into it. Cool. And like looking at you it's it's kind of i feel like we asked the same question of adam it's like did you have this kind of meta view of what your career would look like did did you always see maybe new york and america and all of those things kind of in your future and were you planning that since the very beginning when you started or did it just organically kind of grow as you were were climbing the ladder yeah i think i'd always had this dream of running a team of strategists and i think i saw that in an office building um uh it's actually funny my first dream was when i was in uh, high school i really wanted to work in a bigger office building in melbourne and have <laughs> uh wear suits every day and have friday night drinks that was like my dream that i'd seen in my head <laughs> and like it lasted for a long time, that dream. I don't know why. It's like such a corporate goals dream. Uh, but it that dream evolved to, I think, uh, where I wanted to see myself was running a team um, in, uh, like, I think it would have probably been New York um, in strategy and running a department. That's where I saw myself. I think uh, I kind of uh, did did that, I guess, at BBDO. I kind of had a good uh, good team there. And ran that and now I don't have that next dream. Um, so I'm still trying to work out what's next. God damn, is that is that important, do you think? Having the dream and the kind of the North Star, I guess, to work towards. I mean, that North Star working in an office in a suit, I mean that's not that lofty, but but having the team of strategists is a bit more lofty. <laughs> it was so weird. And I think I was like, yeah, just living in the same suburb, just yeah, it was, it was weird. Um, is it important to have a North Star dream? Uh, I don't think so. I think maybe that's a little overrated, the idea that you need this kind of North Star. I think now I'm just really interested in getting better at my craft. And, and I really like, a, I work best with like a blank slate where no one's telling you what to do. You kind of have to work everything out yourself. Um, that's where I kind of thrive. So I don't think I really need a North Star in there. It's just like making the most of an opportunity and just being like, okay, let's try to figure this out. So what pushed you to uh, make the jump to freelancing and, and going out going out for yourself, especially when you did achieve your dream of, of, of running a, uh, a strategy team? Uh, I, I guess it was to do with um, the move. So 
two years ago, I took a year off. Um, I did like a self-imposed sabbatical. Mm. Um, me and my wife took the year off, uh, went traveling. And instead of moving to New York, we thought, let's try Los Angeles. She works in music. That was going to be better for her here. And having no job to start with, I thought, let me try um, freelancing and consulting and see uh, if there's demand, I'll look for a job kind of softly at the same time, uh, at the same time and see where I go with that. What ended up happening was, uh, I guess this consulting freelancing has been really, um, has really kind of clicked with me and I really love it. Uh, I think it's, I've really thought of new ways that I can kind of make this work, not just like freelancing for a day rate, but, um, other new ways of like uh, earning earning an income. And so that has led me to things like the partnership that I did with Mark Pollard, where we did the Supersizer course. Uh, it's also led me to um, starting a strategy academy, the Planning Dirty Academy, which Vince is part of, uh, and a number of other ways. And it just gets my brain firing in a lot of different ways. So that excites me. I think the other thing about it is the fact that, um, you know, there's no retirement parties in advertising agencies. Uh, if you're in an advertising agency at 45 and um, you're walking around there, you, you're very lucky. You're in the very, very small percentage. You're probably yeah. in a senior leadership position. And so knowing that you've got an expiry date, especially as a strategist that we've all got to kind of come to realization. Our careers are more like sporting athletes yeah. and that career is like a lawyer or maybe those management consultants you're working with. So saying that, what advice would you give to young people to maximize their earning potential while they're young and what decisions uh, should they be making to get the most out of their career if, if what you're saying is true and advertising is a young man's game or young young woman's game as well, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's all about, I think, um, making sure that you understand that, that expiry date. That's the first thing that you need to understand is that you're probably going to be out at 45. Once you come to that realisation, it's then all about um, thinking about saving, uh, money and and how much you earn. Um, so in your 20s, you're most likely, at the start of your 20s, you're going to be underpaid um, in comparison to your friends. And then when you get to your 30s or early 20s, 30s, you're going to be overpaid for your position. So in your 30s, you, you're going to earn a lot of money in comparison to probably your friends in other careers. And in that time, the biggest advice, and this is what my dad gave to me, is like, don't live up to your to your salary that's the time where you've really got to be saving money and um investing that in other ways and so that's the biggest thing for me is that i know the game's not gonna um stay around forever and and it actually happened to my father so that's why i know this because he was a director of ads um and he was really hot in his 30s um early 40s he's hot and then completely went cold and so i've seen that enough to know that the parallels there in strategy as well. And so it's just about really having understanding money, not living up to your, um, to your pay um, in your 30s and saving that money. Where that goes in terms of your career, I think you've got to be really pushy um, on money and negotiation in your 30s. You've really got to be pushing yourself. In your early 20s, I think it's good to work for big-named um agencies so recognizable agencies or recognizable clients or in an 
in a field that's kind of new and emerging where there's a lot of demand. Uh, those three are the kind of best um, tips that I have for people in their 20s. And then you really have got to be cashing that out in your uh, 30s. And how do you kind of bridge the gap between not getting paid to cashing it out in your 30s? Like, I mean, one of the big things that's really daunting is going into that job interview and then they ask you how much you were making at your last job. How do you navigate that to be like, nah, man, I want that baller 180 or 200 or whatever whatever it is that you're, you're looking for um, as kind of that big jump? Because it can be like a jump of up to, I don't know, 80k or 100k or whatever it is so like how do you do that so in america it's illegal to ask people what their previous salary was um so i wouldn't even i've never entertained that question at all um so you wouldn't be saying that it's about putting your own number out first and kind of being pretty steadfast on that uh and i would say yeah I think in terms of numbers, whatever you think, you should add another 10% to that, like another 20K to whatever you think. So you've got kind of negotiation, negotiating room up. Uh, having given um, a number of people, and, and I think the best way to make money is to change um, agencies. That is when you're going to see the biggest jumps. Um, yeah. So that's the uh, probably the biggest piece of advice is like, don't be afraid to jump. Um, after two years, three years, four years, it's kind of good. And if you're not jumping after two years or two and a half years in your 30s, then you need to be asking for a pay rise. And uh, that requires you to be pretty bullish on it as well. Having been on the receiving end of kind of having a number of planners under me, the um, idea of the squeaky wheel, squeaky wheel gets the oil first. Um, yeah. Uh, that. That is 100% true. So the thing is, you've got to be, for me, I think you've got to be in the kind of like the top 20% of your department. And then if you're in that top 20% and you'll fall in and out of that window of the top 20%, uh, you've got to, when you're in the 20%, you've got to hit them hard. You've got to constantly be asking for money, 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 more money. And that, and if, um, if you don't ask for it, it won't come for you. It's much harder to get money for people who are, who are not asking for it. And you've got to understand the cycles of when money comes in an agency. So when a number of people leave your department, great time to ask for money. You can take on more responsibility. You can take on more money. When you win a new account, great time to ask for money. Some, um, some agencies, there's certain times of year, like December or January, where like money opens up. And that's where you've really got to understand those dynamics. God, that's that's good advice, <laughs> I think. But the, the one thing that kind of gets in the way for me is like a lot of strategists out there have this introversion and they're kind of like the imposter syndrome runs so thick in them. So telling them to like be bullish about saying, yo, give me the cash, give me the dollars is like, it's hard, right? Like how do you do, how do you generate the confidence and how do you judge whether or not you're in that 20%? Uh, so the first thing is, is that everyone is making this up. No one has a plan. I had, I, I had this saying um, that 
when I got it, when I got into strategy, I thought there was like um, some secret recipe to strategy. It was like the KFC secret herbs and spices. There was 14 herbs and spices and everyone else knew them um, except for me. But what I realized the further I've gone on in my career is that no one has the recipe. Everyone's just taking their, you know, hand me down recipe from their grandma of how to make spaghetti bolognese and everyone's in their own little um, way making it. And so once you understand that everyone's making up, even your boss, they're kind of like tap dancing and making up on the spot. Me, I'm still trying to understand how to do strategy. And there's so much strategy that I don't understand. I think that hopefully gives you a little bit of comfort um, to know that, um, that everyone's making it up. So you have to be confident. Uh, how do you know whether you're in the top 20%? I think that's, you just got to judge that. Um, usually you can ask, you should be like prompting and asking different ways. If your boss is constantly like shouting you out and like promoting you and like bigging you up, it's probably a sign that you're doing pretty well. Um, if they're introducing you to people above you, like senior leadership, that's a good sign as well. Or if you're getting on their radar, that tends to suggest that you're probably in that top um, 20%. If you're getting asked onto a lot of pitches, they're, they're all signals that you're um, in that top group. Julian, on, on this note, you've said uh, you really love the game of politics within big organizations and you treat it as a game for the young planners and young account execs that, that listen to this thing. Uh, what advice would you give to them for playing the game of politics in Adland? Yeah. Um, so I think uh, politics exists everywhere in every single agency. Um, wherever people come together, there's going to be politics. And so... Um, the faster you understand that, the better you are at your career. And I think with strategy, we're such a soft um, skill and we don't have that direct output. So um, understanding how to be good at politics is key. And so my first piece of advice, and, and this isn't mine, it was actually another planner I worked with, uh, Nicole. She would often tell her juniors, um, take notes in the meetings, but take notes on uh, the body language and the uh, relationship between different people in the meeting. So did the creative director um, listen to the account person's feedback or did they kind of like shudder or kind of like push away in that time? Who do they listen to in that meeting? And then at the end of the meeting, she would meet with uh, the junior and ask them to tell me what was happening in that meeting. And so when you start actually actively like um, actively note-taking on that, it starts to be a little bit more of an education. You're actually thinking about it apart, um, not as something that's kind of soft and, and you can't see it, but you're actually seeing it as concrete um, part of your job and an output. And I think that is the number one thing that will um, help you accelerate in terms of politics. If someone discovered that notebook, say the, the creative director <laughs> that you took notes about, <laughs> what would happen there? Like, it surely, um, like, how do you, because that's not a natural thing. I guess it's a natural thing for planners to do because we're like observant and we like to kind of, we, we figure that out. But, but like, uh, you shouldn't be telling anyone about that notebook, right? <laughs> Well, I think I'd, I'd be honest about it. I'd be like, "Hey, I'm new. I'm just trying to. I'm just trying to learn this. I'm trying to learn how everything works here." And I think if you were completely candid and honest, it would be like, "Okay, cool. 
Um, and you could just blame it on your boss as well. Be like, <laughs> my boss made me do it. Or you Julian can blame it on do it. Just say, Julian made me do it. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, talk to him. Yeah. Hey, Matt, I want to I touch on something you said before and like the hand-me-down recipe and how every person has this sort of unique philosophy on strategy. I guess, what's, what's your philosophy on, uh, on strategy? So I think that a lot of my philosophy came up through um, communications planning, which is what kind of like, I guess, I uh, specialized in. And a lot of that is around the thought, there's a couple of thoughts that are kind of key there, is that there's no, there's never just one single message that you're saying to someone. You've got to say different messages at different times, but it has to live under an overarching bigger idea. And so... Um, that being different comms tasks at different times is kind of key to my thinking and, and making integrated campaigns and starting there is kind of central. I think the second thing that's um, central to, I guess, my philosophy is uh, the idea that media and creative have to work together and the media can communicate um, the idea for you or do a lot of the legwork. I think that's second. And then thirdly, it would be about having a... a uh, the kind of close and tight-knit relationship with uh, creative. And I actually see, I call myself like a back-end strategist um, or a defensive strategist where uh, what I do is often um, where I come into my own is when the idea is baked and how can I help support that idea and make sure it comes to life in the best way. And so I've done, a, I've focused a lot of my career on that of like how do you selling great, innovative creative work and um, learnt a ton around that. So I think they would be my philosophy. Where it's kind of expanding at the moment is um, I'm definitely going more into the brand planning sphere of thinking uh, and, you know, working really closely with Mark. I think a lot of my philosophy is like opening up and expanding there around like the importance of insights and kind of lateral thoughts and how important they are to break open a brief. Um, so, yeah, I'd say it's constantly expanding my philosophy. That's good. Um, a practical question. So, both Max and I come from, form well, formerly from a media agency environment in which we were doing comms planning at a media agency. Um, but the thing that we used to run into as a barrier all the time is having people who just want to be like super lazy with the media buy and you bring them a really nice spot idea, right? Like let's say there's a billboard that communicates, as you said before, like the media can communicate as much as the message on the, on the thing. And they will be like, oh my God, I, I have to do all this work to make that happen. It's just, it's completely bullshit. Like, and kick out the biggest fuss. And then it's like, it gets really, really hard to convince people to do something that's not spots and dots. I'm just ticking my Excel spreadsheet, you know, hitting my reach curves and, and all of the rest. So how do you kind of navigate that, I guess? Yeah, I think that comes back to the politics piece. It's like yeah. understanding how to like motivate people and change people. So that is something I've heard um, a lot. And I think the first thing is, is like how much weight can you put into that room to make that decision happen and how much are you asking? So in something like that, like that scenario, if I was to play it out, I'd want to know more details. I was like, how bought in is the client? How much pull does the client have over the media 
person that you're asking. Because if you've sold it into like the CMO and they're all on board, then that's going to happen. Then you can kind of like push up that way through the CMO. If you're asking for more a favor, how big is the favor that you're asking for? What can you kind of, what bargaining chips do you have on the table? Is it that specific billboard or is it any billboard with certain qualities? Uh, I think it's really important to understand like empathy of the person's job as well. Um, I've got a course where I talk about like the role of kind of a media media planner or a media buyer is kind of, um, we like to think it's all very techy, but uh, a media planner friend of mine said, it's kind of more like a travel agent in 1990. Like imagine <laughs> yeah. you trying to like someone comes along and they've got the worldwide trip booked and then their creative friend comes along and goes, instead of staying in Barbados, you should stay in Paris for two weeks. And imagine the shit show that that would be um, back in the <laughs> trying to organize that, like picking up the phone going, oh, we don't need that hotel, blah, blah, blah. That is what a media, media planner is feeling. And so one of the things that I always say is that uh, with a comms plan, uh, with creative agencies is you, you want to think of it as 80% locked. The last 20% is where you can really bring your creative flavor and, and kind of make recommendations. But a lot of creative agencies try to just like bustle in the room and say, no, this is the way it is. We're going to spend all our money on billboards and, you know, a Netflix series. And you're like, mate, we can't do that as the media agency. So if you can kind of work with them and, and understand their limitations, that can work too. Mate, I want to ask you one last question before we before we get to the brief because I really want to hear your answer. Um, I'm a bit of a sports nut, um, especially when it comes to basketball. And I think there's some really inter- interesting parallels between sport um, and strategy. And I know you're a bit of a, an AFL nut yourself. Um, how, how has playing and, and watching sport influenced your perspective on a strategy? Uh, I would say... Not too much. I think I love <laughs> as, I love to use it as an analogy. The great questions here on the side of a bitch podcast. <laughs> no, no, it's a good, it's a good question because now I've got to think of myself. I think it's so easy to um, draw parallels between sports and war with strategy. Like all the language is around, like all strategy language is around like um, war. And it's all this aggressive, like, tactics and, like, engagement and naturally a lot of um, language that kind of crosses over between the two um, disciplines. I think it's the reason I like sports as an analogy is because it's often a common ground uh, that everyone can kind of understand. And so I think what I love more about it is... um, the general understanding that everyone has. And I, I, I think the thing that I love most is analogies, really taking it out of um, the abstract and making concrete language is something that I kind of try to focus on. Awesome. Cool, man. Well, we'll probably take a, a little two-minute break while we load up the uh, document and then we'll read out the brief and we'll... Uh... Can't wait to hear your response. I don't know why I'm still holding up the mic. Now it's time to put your talents to the test. Now it's time to give a scenario to our guests. So what will be a strategy? Break it down. Let's see how you do it. Problem insight, strategy, and solution. Woo! Search and you shall chime. Make Bing the number one search engine. Google. It's fucking everywhere. 
from your mobile phone to your TV, the local national park, or even that seedy alley you never dared venture past 9pm. To be frank, it wouldn't be far-fetched to say there isn't a single thing in the entire world the search engine hasn't touched, catalogued, or recorded in some way. And this omnipresence, it's the key to Google's power. The more it knows, the more utility it can provide. Bing, on the other hand, is the red-headed stepchild of search engines. Never since Ask Jeeves have we seen such a pathetic attempt at competition with the hundred zeros. I liked Ask Jeeves. With seemingly no functionality bar providing users with a few nice wallpapers and some terrible clickbait articles, it seems there's absolutely no reason to use the Bing service. In fact, as of October 19, the number one search term on the Bing platform, its competitor, Google. The problem, no one in their right mind can find a reason to use Bing. So the task is, get the world to switch their main search engine of choice to Bing. Criteria of success, 40% of the world's search engine users choose Bing. Budget, 10 million production, $60 million media. $60 million. Uh, and always, we've asked our guest to respond to the brief in the taking the piss son of a pitch format, which is problem, insight, strategy, and solution. Julian, how'd you go? Uh, hopefully good. Um, so I, I've never used the piss formula, but I love it. I love, uh, the <laughs> guys. And so I'll, I'll just walk you through kind of like my th thinking on that. I think you guys summed up the, the problem pretty well. It's omnipresent and how I kind of articulated the, the problem is people don't think they Google. Like no one's thinking about the search engine they're using. They just go straight to Google. They just don't think you can use Google for everything at the moment. And so trying to break that pattern of people automatically going to Google um, is, the real, is the real issue and the real problem that we've got to address here. And I think that I've got an angle in there and it came through your... Uh, uh, late was it late night on the park bench you using Google as well and I think there somewhere in there um, has the answer for me and the biggest thing that I realized is that Google being omnipresent and being big is also its biggest disadvantage because the one thing that we know is that Google gossips and when I say Google gossips when you ask Google about a, a question about that rash that you've got uh, Google kind of shares that with advertisers for the next 90 days. So you're getting hit with all these different messages. All your questions are then being used um, and shared with advertisers through the network. And so you, you see this, you see it on Gmail, you've got YouTube, you know, their algorithm is so kind of tweaked in right now. You search one thing on YouTube and then you've got for the next you know, month, the same type of videos. Right now, I've got a lot of, um, there's a lot of videos on cross-country running. I watched one cross-country running video and now they, they think I'm addicted to cross-country running. But somehow <laughs> it, it knows. Also, like Google Maps kind of connects you. Once you search one hotel, then your Google Maps comes up with all these questions. And Chrome and predictive search. It's a massive gossip and it uses that information all the time. And that's not such a problem if your questions are really public questions and you don't mind kind of shouting them in front of everyone. It's only when you start to have those private questions, the questions about your rash, 
or <laughs> looking for your engagement ring or maybe looking for uh, porn, then that's when it really comes back to kind of bite you in the bum. And so I think there's a difference here that we need to show. Um, I don't know if we're going to be able to make it the main uh, search engine of choice, but I think uh, Bing can cut off a piece of the market here. And that is um, we really need to kind of get people to think of Bing um, before asking private questions. I think private questions is what Bing can really um, use because they're small, as you said, no one uses them. Um, that data is sitting all the way over there. The big Google, that's going to remember everything and then it's going to gossip to all its friends. And to me, uh, I think kind of Google is kind of like your hairdresser. They're just sharing all the news they know about the community where Bing is kind of like your doctor. They're private, whatever you ask, that's not going past those walls. And I see that as the kind of major difference here between the two. And so the strategy would be get people to think Bing before asking private questions. And then the last bit, I guess, is the solution. And so here I've kind of used a rough, uh, I guess, three communication tasks. We don't have the creative idea yet, so we don't know where that's going to end up. And I would definitely tighten these ideas in once we've got that. But I think the first thing is, is that the first barrier is that like talking to people about private questions or public questions, it's actually pretty boring. So um, I think the first comms task we're going to do is make, um, an, make entertaining examples of where people have asked private questions in public. And so here, um, I think there's like news stories that I've heard uh, where you're just like a bit astounded by how much information that people uh, know about you through, uh, through your questions that you ask. And so there was that, that um, piece by, I don't know if you remember, it was on Target knew that you were pregnant before you were Oh, yeah, 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 totally. So things like that, I think, it's not that story, but it's a story like that where it's like one search and they think that they know you. Do, do you want to explain the story for those who may have not have heard that one? Um, oh, yes. So uh, Target, um, based on your buy buying history of the products that you were buying, could actually tell that you were pregnant um, before you actually became pregnant. So they had a better validity. I don't know if it's a myth or it was actually true, but it did the rounds a while ago. And, and people were really impressed. Like marketers were really impressed. They're like, oh, my <laughs> God, look at that targeting capability. <laughs> person on the street, they yeah, were like, yeah. holy shit, they shouldn't know yeah. that. They hit, yeah. they hit the target. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Boom. <laughs> you work for a creative agency now. That is disgusting. But I think there's a lot of um, pieces here as well that we could start pulling with. Um, there's probably stories like that that would exist of the data. And any time Google starts to talk to advertisers, like they'll talk to the advertisers about the targeting capabilities, how do we then turn that into a consumer story and show how scary that is or how um, entertaining. I think there's also an interesting thing, and I've seen a lot of these um, around people between when your computer goes from private to public. And so <laughs> who I'm talking about that, you know, like university professors when they've got the computer screen up on the back in front of everyone, everyone's watching what's on their kind of search history. There's obviously yeah. going to be some entertaining um stories around that. So I'd be looking for those kind of stories uh, to begin with. I think then the second barrier is 
Um, people just don't associate Bing with privacy. So we've got to start building that association together. So surrounding uh, private question moments. So really understanding what are those kind of key moments. And I think there's things like engagement. You don't want your partner to know you're um, looking for engagement rings, but you're probably looking at something on YouTube together and it'd be really embarrassing if an engagement ring video came up. And so it's really... Um, finding those moments uh, that we can kind of like surround the private questions. And so I think there's two parts to this. I think there's probably like an uh, online and offline version. So I'd be looking to do potentially like partnerships to sponsor the search of certain uh, big websites. So like in America, it's like WebMD is quite big. Um, you could say like engagement websites um, anywhere talking about jewellery or wedding. Um, then you could do adult entertainment, maybe uh, sponsoring the search of like Pornhub or one of those sites and showing um, that when when privacy matters, Bing's the search engine that you use there. So that's mm -hmm. the first area. I think then you've got um, an interesting place of um, offline uh, places, so private places there too. So like adult stores, uh, doctors, um, lawyers, there's probably all these environments where you could surround there too. I don't know what that would look like to begin with. Um, maybe it's as simple as out of home, but maybe there's some analogies that we could be pulling, um, you know, like the the front of the car park of the adult, you know, store, sexy land is like, that's Google. The back is like Bing and sponsoring the back uh, car park. I don't know. There's, there's definitely some areas that you could work with there. The next area would be also, um, I think, the flip of that and showing the association between gossip and Google. And so first thing comes to mind is all the gossip magazines, uh, what reality TV shows are shown, like where the gossip really kind of spreads and trying to tie that analogy into uh, Google there. And then I think the final um, kind of task is when people are still just searching on Google uh, with those private questions, well, all the ad capabilities of Google are there for us to show that. So how can you remind people um, in some way that their Google ads are being retargeted and they've got that information for 90 days and can keep spreading that? So you, there's probably a number of Google search terms that you could buy. I don't know. There's probably something around competition where you couldn't do that, but there's definitely something in that. Um, I think also showing people the cookies on the sites you're searching from could be interesting or even creating a tool showing you what Google knows about you and maybe you press something in, it's like an application and it shows you how much they know about you. But I think those three kind of communication tasks we could do of kind of making the story about privacy entertaining and questions, private questions entertaining, then surrounding Bing and private moments and then the final one of, the people who have forgotten have kept asking um, private questions. Let's remind them of how much uh, privacy is at stake. God damn. That is, that, that is super cool. That hit that out of the park, man. <laughs> I, I don't know. I'd never expected adult shops to come up in this brief. <laughs> Definitely the first Pornhub integration I think we've had so far. Yeah, I love how you took uh, our, our line about a seedy alleyway and turned it into a killer strategy. And um, yeah, yeah, Google, it, it, it's like for all the stuff they talk about, moonshots and dri driverless cars, they really just are, you know, an advertising company at, at the end of the day. And, and they make money off our 
off our data and I love how you flip that on its head and turn sort of like their greatest strength in, yeah. into their, no, their you know, greatest their greatest weakness. Yeah, well, it's kind of interesting because when you work at a media agency and Bing comes in, you kind of laugh. You're like, <laughs> no one's going to be buying anything from you, man. Like, <laughs> so even at the industry level, like where people where they actually want to sell advertising, they can't do it. I guess the the question is um, for you especially is now that we've got this awesome strategy, how would you go about selling in adult shops and everything? to the media agent so what what's your first thought about how i'm divvying up this up between creative agency and media agency and making it happen yeah so i think the natural thing is is like 90 percent, 10 percent um partnership between like media should be about 90 10 percent is um creative production so that's where i'd be starting but you guys kind of had that already those numbers i think um in the brief so what i would be doing here is uh, obviously running this past the creatives first, I'd want to be knowing if this is the direction that they would want to be going in. Um, and then also if I've kind of got the green light there around this privacy and Google gossip is where they want to, um, talk about, I would be floating it with the client to see where their appetite is and whether they are interested. Uh, so a topic like adult entertainment, um, I would be seeing if there's interest there. I think, you know, obviously it resonates a lot. I would be showing advertising. I think Pornhub um, does a really good job of creative advertising that's kind of not, you know, it, it's quite uh, open to everyone. It's not like 18 plus type of content. Uh, they've come up with a number of like different tech innovations uh, around there. So I'd be showing the client some of the work like that to try to ease um, ease them down because adult entertainment might feel a bit um, bit of a stretch to begin with. So I'd be showing that and showing why this is so important, how much search data there are, is around this. And if they believe that privacy is the angle, then you definitely have to go into adult entertainment, um, adult entertainment online. So I'd, I'd be building the data case, um, the first thing, after I've kind of got sign off from the creatives that they're interested in that and then working with um, the media agency to find those opportunities. Gotcha. That was absolutely amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Julian. Um, it almost feels like maybe down the line we get you in for a part two because I, I feel like we can scoop much more out of that brain of yours um, and get it out there to the people just because, I don't know, like we, we kind of hit that whole um, career angle and everything, but I, I'd be really interested to get more of your thoughts on creativity and strategy and that, and that side of the philosophy of things and, and all of that as well. So, But thank you so much for coming on board and from LA and sorting out the audio visual for us. Which we are absolutely terrible at doing, um, and yeah, let let let's uh, let's talk in the future about some more stuff we can do. Do a part two. Thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah, uh, son of a pitch. Yeah, this is something you don't want to miss. Uh -huh. Interviews with creatives and the best strategists. All the top in Australia who steady making moves. Uh -huh. The podcast that puts you right in the pitch room. Yeah, professionals in this market. Uh, time to get it started. Uh, give us some complex problems. So let's see how you can solve it. Tune in with some Aussies. I bet you can't resist. Yeah.